Our topic has been contentment, and uh, I'd like you to open your Bibles to the book of Psalms. This morning we're going to look in this service at Psalm 16. Let me read the whole psalm. It is a miktam of David. And this is what God's word says. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life in your presence There is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. May God be praised through the reading of his word. May he write its truth upon our hearts. Let's pray together. Father, what a blessed thing it was for the one who now comes to preach to hear the song of your church desiring for your word. And so, Lord, we pray that you would be the one who's speaking. We thank you that this Bible we opened is true. It's your word. It's a word of life. Father, press that truth to us now. Grant to us, through your word, the very life of salvation. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've been enjoying a conference called Wrestling with Contentment, and much of our thought has centered, understandably, in the writings of the Apostle Paul. He talks about it quite a lot. I spoke from 2 Corinthians yesterday. We've been in Philippians. Philippians 4.11 is maybe the classic statement where Paul says, I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. And the, his famous statement follows that we know better. It says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And and we observed yesterday during the conference that he's not talking about taking SAT tests, although there's a a truth to that. We we looked at him for SAT tests. My two oldest teenagers have the SAT uh, in a few weeks, and I think they're they're asking for the Lord's strength. But that's just not what he's talking about there. He's not talking about throwing a fastball or a touchdown pass. What he's talking, what he says, I can do through his strength is I can be contented. I can have joy in my life, and joy is tied in Paul's writings, to contentment. That same chapter, earlier in verse 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Now there in that chapter then, Paul sets joy, joy in the Lord before us as a duty and as a command. And then contentment is something that we are to learn in Christ. Now, interestingly, that same link between the joy of the Lord and a life of contentedness is also seen in the book of Psalms. I think it would be 
very unfortunate for us to do a whole conference on uh, contentment without opening the book of Psalms. And the Psalms begin, the whole Psalter begins with a statement that's tied to this. Psalm 1 begins with him saying, David saying, blessed is the man. And the book of Psalms lays out to us the blessed life and all of its contours and its challenges and its experiences, its emotions. And the Psalms tell us there is a blessed life. There's a way to be happy and fulfilled in God. Now, this happens to be the very thing that everybody wants, blessing. If you ask people what they're looking for, they will almost always say, Christian or non-Christian, they will say, well, I want to be happy. I once saw a billboard along a highway that showed this. It advertised a phone number that you could call for help. The number was 1-800-BLESS-ME. And you know what? There's nothing unbiblical about that. We should want to be Blessed. According to the Bible, it was for blessing that God created us. The very first thing God did at the end of Genesis 1 when he made the man, and, the man and the woman to bear his image was he blessed them. We are designed to live in the blessing of God. That is what we want. And it so happens that that is also what Christianity offers to the world. We know that, right? Christianity is not about a bunch of rules, about of ways you have to be different, cranky with the society. Uh, it's certainly true we're going to be different by being biblical, and, and the Lord is going to call us to holiness and godliness in those ways. And yet the end product that we're to experience with the Lord is blessedness, joy, contentment. And Jesus summed up his ministry in John 10, verse 10, by saying, I have come that they may have life, and that abundantly. And yet, isn't it true that ours is a world that in so many ways has given up even the hope of blessing? And so what we've done, I think this so marks our generation that instead of blessing, we are just numbing ourselves with busyness and entertainment. We settle into a grim despair. We're killing time. We're just trying to get by, people said. And here the Bible says, you know, we can have the desire of our hearts. We open up this book, the God who we meet there through his son, the Lord Jesus, desires us to be blessed. Now, to be sure, when we as Christians and when the Bible speaks of blessing and joy, it means something different than what is the normal view in our society. I think when people think of happiness today, they tend to mean having a good time. They're talking about having pleasing experiences and avoiding displeasing experiences. And so the emphasis is on our circumstances and it is our circumstances that will determine whether or not we are blessed and happy. Now, despite what people say, Christians are not against people having a good time. We are not opposed to having good circumstances. And yet the Bible understands blessedness and happiness and contentment and joy in a very different way, one that is not a result of our circumstances, is not dependent on our circumstances, but rather is the work of God through the Holy Spirit in Jesus Christ in our lives. It's a joy that is not dependent on the world but is received as the gift of God's grace and draws its energy from God. Well, the Bible offers us this joy. The Bible even commands it. Rejoice in the Lord, 
I will say it again, rejoice, Paul says. And yet I don't think, I don't think it's a stretch to say that many of us here will answer and say, oh, would that it were true that I actually lived in that kind of joy. You talk about it, I see the Bible says it, but in my actual experience, I am far from it. Well, let me say that if you feel that way, Psalm 16 presents a pathway whereby faith leads to contentment and contentment leads to the joy of the Lord and it starts with an identity that is found and that is centered in God and his salvation through Jesus Christ. That's what we're gonna do this morning in Psalm 16. Now this psalm is composed by King David. He wrote it like so many others in a time of personal difficulty. Uh, the psalm has really four portions. First we have in verse one, a prayer for help. Look at verse one. Preserve me, O God, for in you, I take refuge. Now, there are some psalms in which David tells us what his trouble is. This is one where he doesn't. And so we don't know the exact circumstances that produce this plea. Uh, but we can see that David is in some sort of distress, some sort of danger. I think it's certainly very possible that this comes from the long period in David's life. I know this church has been studying 1 Samuel, so you know about David's uh, relationship with King Saul. Saul was a difficult boss, and he uh, was pursuing David, trying to take his life. David spends years uh, on the run, living in caves against a wicked king who's trying to uh, uh, destroy him, even though David is innocent of the wrongdoing that he's charged with. And so he's in fear, he's in poverty. Uh, there is no place for him to lay his head. And so we see why he, uh, in this psalm, like so many, he Praise to God, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Now, the kinds of threats and trials and ordeals that David went through, and we read about in 1 Samuel particularly, are the kinds of things that happen all the time in our world. People often are the victim of others' greed, others' envy, others' malice. Life in this world is certain, certain to mean familiarity with sorrow and grief and disease, ultimately with death. And so if we, here's the point, if we are going to know contentment, if we are going to experience the joy of the Lord, my friends, until Jesus returns, it has to be in the world described here. The world in which we're often going to be on our knees saying, oh Lord, help me, preserve me, I'm in great distress. And isn't that what Jesus said? In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, if that is the case, if it is the case that uh, satisfaction and joy and happiness only comes when times are good, there's no real reason why people should become a Christian. I want to say to you, if you're not, you're not a Christian here, if Christians are only able to have joy and peace and contentment when outwardly things are going well, we would confess to you that we are no different from others. There is no particular power. Now, the world knows how to have fun, knows how to rejoice when things are going well. The tragedy is that the world's joy fails when trials come. Now, Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He said, any fool can sing in the day. When the cup is full, man draws inspiration from it. When wealth rolls in abundance round about him, why, anyone can sing praise to a God who gives a plenteous harvest. 
But songs in the night come only from God. They are not in the power of men. And that's what Psalm 16 presents. That joy that comes from God that is not dependent on circumstances. Now David seems to have known this because in verse 1 he starts us in the right way. Uh, He is troubled by his circumstances and he realizes his weakness and need. He might have engaged in self-pity. He might have kept his focus on others. His mind, in fact, there were many times he fell to this temptation. His mind might have not thought about God at all. He might have skipped church that morning and done some scheming against his enemies, uh, put in a little extra work to save himself. But instead, and very wisely, he fixes his eyes on the Lord. Look at verse 1. Keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. David brings his plea to the Lord, and he fixes his thoughts and his eyes upon the Lord, and that is the first step in his path to joy. Well, let's look at verses 2 to 4, because we see David's actions in light of that prayer. He's in difficult circumstances. He turns away from them, and he turns to the Lord for safety and strength. And what he's now going to do is he's going to center his identity, his understanding of himself, his life, and his circumstances in light of the great reality of what he knows about God. And that's what we see in verses two to four. It's sort of a spiritual inventory in light of his remembering God. I'm in a very difficult situation. I'm afraid, I'm worried, I'm distressed. Let me go to God, let me think about God, and then from that perspective, let me re-inventory my identity and my life. In verse two, he acknowledges that God is real in his affairs. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Now, he uses two different words for God, two different names for God. First, he describes him as Yahweh. You'll see in verse two, the first use is in small caps. That's the covenant name of God in Hebrew, Yahweh. That's the personal name. That's that's the name that says, "I, I am your God and you are my people. And so he says, okay, my life is in turmoil. I'm struggling, but there is God and this I know. He is my God and he has made promises to me. He has pledged himself to me and secured me to him. And then he says the word Adonai, you are my Lord, you are my sovereign. God is my God and he is the Lord of my circumstances. I I often like to think medievally in terms of castles and knights. I like to think of myself bowing as a vassal uh, before my Lord and laying my sword at his feet and he is my king and my sovereign. I think it's one of the biblical ways of thinking. You'll see it in the Psalms. And imagine yourself, you're this poor vassal outside the castle and the enemy's coming and you look back and there are those strong walls and they're standing on the ramparts. It's the king in his glory and in his hand is the sword that you know can smite your foes and that will change your thoughts about your circumstance, won't it? Your identity is now found in relationship to him and your way of thinking is changing. God is present in my circumstance. That's what David's saying. The Lord, the sovereign who is my God is present in my circumstances. He is indeed the sovereign controller of my affairs. And so in verse three, he then turns to his fellow believers 
As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. David realizes that he is one in the company of the church and of fellow believers. That's the beat he's going to preach about contentment in the church. And part of that is saying, you know, I'm not going through this alone. What I'm struggling with and what I'm afraid of is not, in fact, insignificant, even now, because I'm part of this blessed communion, the saints and the lambs, the excellent ones, and they are the ones that matter to me most. And I want what I'm going through to have a redemptive effect upon them. He's just redoing his whole identity from fear to faith. Once God is in his experience, now, how uplifting it is to realize that you are part of the people of God and then to, to, then to love them and, and to not think so much about what you're experiencing in your trials, but rather desiring to be a blessing to them. Do you do that? Do you find, for instance, that you love other Christians? You know, it's a wonderful thing to realize that your heart loves the people of God. That's what David's doing here. Oh, the saints, they're the excellent ones. They're the ones in whom I delight. That is a testimony of the Holy Spirit in your life. I love it when I'm in a taxi cab in Milwaukee or in New York or in some other place and I realize that the taxi driver is playing Christian music and immediately, without me doing it, my heart leaps towards him. You experience that? And that's a testimony that says, yeah, i got a lot of problems, but obviously I am a child of God. Obviously I am one of the saints. I, I, this is, I am part of that people, and my identity shifts from my circumstances to my belonging to God and to his people. John says, we know that we have passed out of death to life because we love the brothers. It is not natural to have a supernatural affection for the saints, and if you find that in your heart, it testifies to an identity in Christ. That was 1 John 3, 14. Now then he turns back to the world. He turns his gaze back to his enemies, to the unbelieving idolaters around him. And, and here's what he says. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or I will not take their names on my lips. My, what a change of perspective they were only in verse four. Back in verse one, he's thinking about, Lord, they're, they're gonna hurt me. I, I, what I think about them is what they're going to do to me. But now when he's seen God in his glory and his, as a savior and the sovereign, he's seen the church, he looks upon them with pity even. And also with a resolve that whether they would slay him or not, he will not yield to their idolatry. That's what he's saying here. His perspective is completely different. I, even if they're going to hunt me down, I will not yield to their way of life. My friends, our generation needs the spirit badly right now because the world increasingly is demanding that you and I conform. And we turn on the news and we listen to what's going on and the things happening and how easy it is for us to say, oh Lord, we're, I'm afraid of what they're gonna do to us. What we need to do is to turn back to God and say, Lord, you are sovereign over 2014 in America and in Albuquerque, and in Greenville, and wow, your church is here, and there's the work of the kingdom of God, and I'm a part of that, and Lord, oh, I, I, I'm not afraid of them anymore. I, I'm spiritually concerned for them, but I will never yield. I will not yield to the idolatrous demands of the beast, and of the antichrist, and of the power of the world. Now notice how we're only, again, we're only four verses into the psalm. What a difference it makes for you and for me 
when we turn our hearts to God and we say, I'm going to shape my identity, the way that I think about myself and my life based upon what the Bible tells me about God and about myself. I am a child of God. I'm a member of the people of God. Yes, I live in a hostile, unbelieving world in which I am called to live for him and his glory, for the spread of his gospel, and not to partake in idolatries and sin. What a different identity we find in Jesus Christ. And that identity is going to lead David out of the anxiety that prompted this psalm into contentment and through contentment to joy. Well, let's move forward to verses five and eight because we're going to start seeing this new and godly attitude that arises out of his faith. Remember, first David prayed to God and then he applied his faith to his circumstances with a biblical and godly identity, facing his trials through prayer and through God's word. And now he says in verse five and verse six, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Isn't that a lovely expression of Christian contentment? What a different perspective we have on things when our identity is centered on God. David says, I cheerfully accept the portion that God has given me, the providence that he has ordained, how things are working out under God's rule. I cheerfully accept them because I, I know him. He remembers God's sovereignty. His, his circumstances, friends, your circumstances are not happening to you randomly. It's been one of our big themes the whole conference. What a blessing it is, even with tears on our cheeks, and we can suffer, we're gonna talk about that, but we can say, God is the one who's given this to me, and I know his purposes are good, I know his purposes are holy, I know this is a step to glory. We've been talking about heaven, we were singing about heaven. I always wanna say, when we're reading the biblical materials about heaven and glory, my friends, that is our future history, and it is a soon future history in a biblical sense. Our trials are leading us here. And so he says, my chosen portion and my cup, I rejoice in it. The lines have fallen for me in, in, in pleasant places. Uh, when he speaks here of my inheritance, I have a beautiful inheritance. He's actually not thinking in terms of future inheritance, but the, the people of Israel had an inheritance. There was land that was apportioned to them. And he's saying, this is the, this is the life that God has for me on March 16, 2014, and I accept it as beautiful and good. Now let's be honest, this is not easy. This is one of the more difficult things for Christians to do, peacefully to submit to the portion God has allotted to us. And I know you may be disappointed with your life. You may be suffering various griefs. If you are not sorrowing now, you will be soon. But you see, David shows us that that is not an absolute barrier to contentment and joy. The things that he knows about God, he has taken to himself and he sees him as he really is. He's taken the identity as a child of God, a member of God's people. He remembers what's happening in the world. What is the end that awaits the ungodly? And, and with these truths, he reigns in his heart and he submits to the will of this God. Now that's what prayer is designed to do in our lives. 
That prayer is, prayer does change things. Praise God that in his sovereign will, prayer changes things, but prayer is so essential in changing us. A day-to-day change, a life that is centered on God, an identity fixed on him, and then the word of God reveals him and his ways to us. And we begin to gain a calm reliance on his sovereign grace. We submit to his will, to his wisdom and his love, and we trust in him. Now, this is what caused the Apostle Paul to write Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This does not say that everything's good. Oh, we'll just pretend it's good. No, we don't pretend. One of my mottos is being a Christian does not make me less human, but more human. And I can partake of the truth of what's going on. I can, I can enter into the griefs and sorrows more authentically but I can say that God is going to work in them for good. By, notice, notice Romans 8.28 does not say we feel, it says we know. We know that all things work together for good. And David says, surely I have a good inheritance. And Paul says the peace of God, when we pray and center our life on him, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now that is what David does in this psalm. Now, let me ask a question. How can we know that David really has done this? This is not just words in his poem. That he's really submitted his heart to God. And the answer is what we find in verses 7 and 8, that he responds with a desire to praise and worship God. Let me say to you, if our hearts are really content in him, and and even in our sorrows and our trials, and, and if we're going to submit to him, that will be seen in a desire, therefore I want to glorify him, therefore I want to praise him. Look at verses seven and eight. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Now, David is getting closer to joy now through contentment. And we know that because we find him praising the Lord. Did you know that it is worship that takes our hearts in submission and leads them to joy? A cold, resentful submission to God's will is never going to produce joy. But the Christian who bends his or her knee in praise to God, that Christian will rise up in gladness. Now, why is that? Well, we were created to worship God. Worship is that which is best for us. Joy comes to us when we are acting as we were designed to act. We are fulfilling our highest purpose in sincere, heartfelt worship unto God. And you know, we can do it anywhere. We need to come together on the Lord's day. It's very important for you to come to church and be part of a congregation. But we're to worship him at all times and all circumstances. And what happens is when we worship the Lord with glad and trusting hearts, he works his joy back into our lives. That's what Psalm 16 is saying. You turn to the Lord, you, 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 you fix your identity in him. You say, Lord, I, I accept my lot in life. I want to praise you. You give that to God, and through the Holy Spirit, he gives joy to you. If there's a key to joy, if there's a secret to happiness, this is it. Psalm 71, 23 says, My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises unto you. So let me ask you a question. Are you able to worship God in the valley of sorrow 
in the shadow of death, in the presence of difficulty or trial or pain? Can we walk this path first of faith, then of submission to God's will, and then of praise to our good and sovereign God? Because if we can't, isn't it true that there is essentially a mercenary quality to our worship? That we worship really the gifts. We worship the stuff that he gives us and we're essentially indifferent to him. My friends, this is endemic to our age. I think it has to be said that for all the wonderful things happening in the Bible-believing evangelical church today, we do not have the power we want and we need. Why is it in large part? It's because we want the stuff we want the gifts, and we are indifferent to the giver himself. Now, I'm not saying this is easy to do. It's not automatic. But if we will walk this path, it will change the kind of life that we will lead. And do we center our identity, the way that we think about ourselves and our lives, in God and in his word, in his saving work through Jesus Christ. You see, because if we do, that will enable us to live above a world of sorrow. Now, we have great examples in the Bible. You think of Job. And Job was a man who praised God when things were going well. Look, if things are going well, feel free and praise God for that. You should do that very much. And then the devil comes in and he argues with God that, you know, Job only praises you because of the blessings you give him. Let's see how he does. If those tables were turned and that happens, God allows Satan to afflict Job in, a, in terrible, terrible ways so as to test the motive of his worship. And when the calamities fall, well, suddenly we have Job's friends. They descend upon him and they draw the conclusion that you're suffering. Therefore, you must be out of the center of God's will. There must be some wickedness in your life because otherwise, how could you suffer? We hear that kind of thing all the time. But what we have in Job is even apart from the special arrangement with Satan, that in a sin-cursed world like ours, we will often suffer apart from any sin of our own uh, with little or nothing to do with our sin and failure. Well, Job's friends accused him, but his wife looked on him with, as he's covered with boils, and she gives that immortal uh, advice that wives should never give to their husbands. Why don't you just curse God and die? Job 2, verse 9. Now, we laugh, but you felt that way. I felt that way. Can I just curse God and get this over with? But Job did not do that. He submitted to God's will as it was revealed in his life, he answered his wife, shall we receive good from God and not receive evil? And then he praised God from his misery. The Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in life or in death, what Job does in that book is he commits himself to the sovereignty of God, to the grace of God. You know the great statement of chapter 13, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. Now my friends, that is real worship and it is going to have an effect in our lives. God is going to cause it to have an effect in our lives. When we can worship like that, then God is enlarged in our eyes and we are changed. A number of years ago, uh, a minister in my denomination and his family were driving down the highway and they were struck, their car was struck head on. A driver crossed the median, it just took a couple of seconds and, and there it was. And it was uh, several days before his wife woke up in the hospital out of her coma and uh, they, they could see she was coming out and some of her friends from the church 
gathered at her bedside so they could be with her when she awoke. And you can imagine the questions that came. And those dear friends had the, the duty to tell her that her husband and her little son had died. It's a true story. The little boy had just a second beforehand unbuckled his seatbelt to pick up a crayon that had fallen to the floor. And while the two sisters were saved, he was killed upon impact. Do you know what that Christian woman who had learned about God and who previous to that had fixed her identity in God and his sovereignty and his grace and his love and and in the saving work of Jesus Christ. You know what she said? Her first response was, God is good in all that he does. God is good. She wasn't saying, I don't care. She cared. She was covered with tears. Her friends were holding her. But she knew God. And she said, God, I'm going to hold on to this. Because this is true even now. I know that God is good in all that he does. You know, I've had people say to me, that's, you know, it's trite. My friends, that is not trite. The angels look with burning eye upon that and they give glory to God. And that is the only way that we will have joy in a world like this. The Apostle John put it this way. This is the victory that overcomes the world even our faith, 1 John 5, 4. And we are put into this world to prove the truth of that claim to the glory of God. And when we do, did you know that the result in our lives is joy? By faith, as we worship God, the Holy Spirit enters into our hearts and he bears the fruit of a joy that is born of heaven that draws its life from there, that is independent of this world. This is why, in a real sense, spiritual joy, an ability to delight in the Lord, even when we're having hard times, and also in good times, is one of the chief barometers of whether or not we are walking with the Lord in real communion. In your presence, verse 11 says, There is fullness of joy. When we draw near to the Lord and we walk with him and we yield ourselves for his glory and we lay hold of that, there is fullness of joy. Well, David worshiped God. He set the Lord before him and he was not shaken. And he praised God for giving him counsel. Isn't that interesting? David never says that God removed the danger. David has forgotten the danger as it was. But God has changed him and his outlook and his spirit. His word has counseled David in the way of faith. He's given him instruction. What a blessing that is. His grasp was tenuous and weak. But when David found God with those hands of faith, he found a strong support. Verse 8, I will not be shaken. Therefore, he goes on to say, my heart is glad. You see, it's it's the Christian who says, because of him, I'm not shaken. Therefore, that is the heart that is glad. I will praise the Lord. Therefore, my heart is glad. That is the secret, friends. That is the secret of contentment through faith that leads to the joy of the Lord. And he wants to give it to our hearts. Now, let me make a detour. I know I'm getting on in my sermon. It'll be a brief detour, but it becomes at the really heart of what we're saying here. And that is this, the principle of the indirectness of the Christian life. I'll explain this. But there is a principle of the indirectness of the Christian life. I said at the beginning, everybody wants to be happy. I want to be happy. 
and hardly anybody seems to find it. And the reason is that they are going about it the wrong way. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says the chief end of man is not happiness, but it's to glorify God and then to enjoy him forever. It says we are to worship him. Our, 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 the direct path, what we're, the, the product that we're seeking is that God would be praised. And as a result, we find the joy as a byproduct of the glory of the Lord. Martin Lloyd-Jones remarked on this in a sermon on the beatitude that said, blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness. And listen to what Lord Lloyd-Jones says here. He says, we are not to hunger and thirst after blessedness. We are not to hunger and thirst after happiness. And that's what most people are doing. Whenever you put happiness before righteousness, you will be doomed to misery. That's the great message of the Bible from beginning of end. They alone are truly happy who are seeking God and are seeking righteousness in him. That's what I mean by the indirectness of the Christian life, the indirect route to joy. Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you, Matthew 6.33. And so we are not to twist our lives seeking personal fulfillment and satisfaction. Rather, we are to give ourselves over to God. We're to give ourselves over for his worship, for his service, for his praise, and for his glory. And then we'll find, almost to our surprise, that as we are directing our hearts towards him, he is directing his heart towards us with the gift of joy. Jesus said, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Matthew 16, 25. Joy is not to be the aim of our lives, rather the glory of God. The, the, the product of my life is God and his glory and the byproduct that he gives to us is joy. You know, one of the great mistakes we make is the confusion of products and byproducts. We make that mistake in worship. People say the purpose of worship is evangelism. My friends, the purpose of worship is not evangelism. People say the purpose of worship is edification. My friends, the purpose of worship is not edification. The purpose of worship is doxology, that God would be praised in glory. But then those are the byproducts that he gives us. We don't lose evangelism and God-centered worship. We don't lose edification. But when we give ourselves to him, he gives himself to us. And the same is true with blessing and happiness. If you are seeking to be happy, you never will be. But if you are seeking God to know him and his glory as a byproduct, he will give you joy in your life. Well, that's what Jesus found in the Garden of Gethsemane. He foresaw dreadful circumstances, far greater than what David was facing in Psalm 16. He saw his wrongful arrest in the morning that night, in fact, and the trial that night, and then the tortuous death in the morning. He prayed, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And Jesus was then reminded, he, he knew, he reminded himself, as it were, of the necessity of the cross, but he, 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 he knows that, but he appeals to God. He says, ultimately, not as I will, but as you will. And there's Jesus preparing for the ultimate ordeal, saying, your will at the end of the day is what I want. I, 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 I feel the sorrow and the suffering of the cross, but let your will be done. 
And you know what Hebrews 12, 2 says about him in the Garden of Gethsemane? I mentioned it, I think, yesterday or the night before. Hebrews 12, 2 says it was for the joy set before him that Jesus took up the cross. There is Jesus in Gethsemane with all the, the anxiety of the cross upon his mind and heart. And he says, and yet, Lord, mine is a beautiful inheritance. Your will be done. And the Bible says God gave him even their joy. Well, my friends, our crosses will never compare to his, but they are crosses, aren't they? And since there are crosses, we feel them, and they require the same grace of God. And bearing our sufferings, we fellowship in the suffering of Christ, and he teaches us to say the words of the psalmist that he himself first has said, Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. Therefore, it is for my good. I want your will to be done. He knew that God was in charge. He knew that his Father is loving and good. He knew that God's purposes never fail. And so he worshiped and rejoiced in the shadow of the cross. Well, if there was any event in all of history that proved that Jesus and David were right, that event was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that is, it turns out, in Psalm 16, precisely what David foresaw and what Jesus foresaw. Uh, Peter pointed out this fact in his sermon on Pentecost. He preached from Psalm 16. Peter said that David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor would his flesh see corruption. That's Acts 2, verse 31. And in verses 9 and 10 of our psalm, this is the explicit cause of David's joy, that he knows that after the ordeal of this life, there is a resurrection. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. And my friends, that is something we enter into because in Christ it is our resurrection and our future holds a union in the resurrection of Christ and that resurrection is the guarantee of an end in joy and glory and blessing. And Jesus conquered the grave and he ascended into heaven and he is living there and he's living in us now by his Holy Spirit. Ultimately, it is by the resurrection that God wipes away every tear, that he overturns every injustice. He removes every curse and gives blessing through his love. And so you and I, now when we find ourselves in the shadow of death and fear and suffering in the cross, we too can say, Lord, I believe in the resurrection. And if I am bearing a portion of that cross, I know I will have the entirety of that resurrection. You have made known to me the path of life. And my friends, that path leads to Jesus Christ. And it leads to the cross of Jesus Christ, where by faith our sins are forgiven. But then we enter into the lifestyle of that cross. And there is the promise of resurrection. In your presence there is fullness of joy, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Well, that's where David finishes this path of faith that has led him to contentment and then to joy in the Lord. He began by turning to the Lord and then he centered his identity on the Lord. He, he understood everything in light of the truth of God and then he yielded himself to God. He submitted to God and he desired to worship him and then God worked in him a joy through the Holy Spirit and one that directs him to the greater joy of the resurrection to come. Do you know that's true for you too? 
that God wants to give you now a joy that is not the final joy, but it's the anticipation and foretaste of that joy in the resurrection that will be full. And when we live with him in glory, we will say at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. But let me conclude with just a couple of questions. First is this. Did Jesus Christ go to the cross for your sins? Are you in Christ? Can you look at your life and say, God is my God? And Jesus Christ is my Savior, and he has come to me, he has brought his gospel to me, and he has given me the gift of faith, and I have yielded to him. Can you do that? Because I want to say to you, if not, there is no greater priority in your life. And I have to warn you that you will have no joy apart from good circumstances. And in fact, all the happiness in this world without Christ is but a wisp and an illusion. Without Jesus, nothing you can have will bring you true joy. And what joy you have now will evaporate in death and the final judgment. But if you can say, yes, Jesus did die for my sins, and Jesus rose to secure for me an eternal destiny of joy so that I know that God will not abandon me to the grave, then let me ask you a question, and the question is this, is that not enough? Can't we trust him? If that's true, if in the, I look to the past and God, the God who is sovereign over all things, he sent his son born of a great love to bear the burden of my sin so that I would have an eternity of glory and he sent the Holy Spirit into my life. Can we not look to the future and say, Lord, right now I'm going through a hard time. I, I live in a hard world, but it's a world leading to glory and you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. And you in Jesus have made known to me the path of life. And I want to say to you then, let your identity be in Christ. Let that be the idea. You know, it won't happen automatically. This is why we get before him in prayer. This is why we come and open our Bibles. Because that we'll be awakened to this great truth. This is why we come into the house of God to be with the people of God. To say, the Lord is my God and he's sovereign. And you know what? I'm part of the company of the saints. And yes, we're in the midst of this wicked world. But we're marching on to glory. For the glory and praise of our Savior. And if you do that, and if you say, Lord, what you give me along the way, I offer to your glory, he will give back to you his spirit of joy. You have made known to me the path of life. My friends, that path is the path of faith. Through the ordinary means of grace. Through prayer, through the word, through the sacrament. In the church, the saints of God. In a wicked world, yielding to, trusting, glorifying the Lord, receiving a portion of his joy in return, and knowing what our destiny holds. It's the destiny of verse 11. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. If you will take that identity, and if you will yield yourself to him for his glory, trusting him to work his joy in your life, he will do it. And the joy that he gives you, the world will never take away. And it will be but a foretaste of that greater joy that will not, not only will not fail, but it will grow and grow and grow. The fullness of joy at his right hand forevermore through Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we want 
the joy of the Lord. But Lord, we also know that this generation needs to see Christians who live in a demonstration of supernatural power. Christians who who are not like everyone else, dependent on the circumstances and living for them and serving the circumstances in the world. But Lord, Christians who look up and see you and know you're real and you loom above our circumstances and you are present with us and we yield ourselves to you. We let you be the determiner of the affairs of our lives and we resolve that we will worship you. Father, would you do that in this church? Thank you for this dear church. Pour out your spirit on this place. Bless your word. Answer their prayers. Meet them in their worship. But Lord, grant them this faith that lets them know who they are in Christ so that they will worship and glorify you. And then, Lord, would you give them the power of Christ for the joy of the Lord and let it be their strength. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.